Getting the motivation and the vision for evangelism is good and it's right, it's helpful, but there still comes a point when you have to open your mouth and share the gospel. The gospel has to be personally applied. It has to be lived out in practical, real ways. But the good news has to be declared. It must be explained. It, it's got to be told. You have to seize opportunities and succinctly share the gospel. So Jesus was the master. He was the master of conversations. He was a master of amazing questions and seizing opportunities. You think about the woman at the well. The woman at the well, he, he used a common need of water in order to engage her in a conversation about her spiritual well-being, her spiritual needs. You, you've got how Jesus spent time with tax collectors and what were they also called? Sinners. Tax collectors and sinners in order to engage them. You also have him bold, Jesus boldly asking Zacchaeus to invite him to his house. I want to go to your house. I want to have this conversation with you. Please take me to your home in the comforts of your own realm. Let's talk. Each case, he engaged a person where the person was found, found a common connection, and moved that person toward a spiritual conversation. How many of you love just talking about these? I mean, just love, like, man, my top 10. That's about the percentage in the average church who actually has shared the gospel. Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, is a beautiful picture, a model for even us. He was a religious leader, and he came to Jesus at night to ask questions. And Jesus used this opportunity to engage his mind, engage his heart regarding the gospel. And I want you to notice three things that Nicodemus did. The first thing that he did was he was able to get Nicodemus thinking. To, re to really think. He went much deeper than just your, so, how's the weather? You know, how's work treating you? He, he got Nicodemus thinking. In the first two verses, we learn that Nicodemus came to Jesus looking for answers. He was a man on a mission. Apparently, Nicodemus had some issues where it was troubling him internally, and, and he had to work them out. So he sought Jesus out, and the very first thing that he says was not a question. Rabbi, we, we know that you're a teacher from God. Statement. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. He just came out and just said, listen, I know that you're a teacher. I know that you must be from God because you are doing amazing things. What is going on? But he didn't ask a question. But behind his statement was a question, wasn't it? I don't know. I, maybe I do. I think Nicodemus was searching, seeking out something that Jesus had. And as a religious leader, he knew certain things, but they weren't all clicking. 
And I think that's probably true with many people in our culture. They got a lot of questions, a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, but something just is clicking. Something is absolutely missing here. Somewhere, I believe, in all the souls of humanity, they wonder things about, like some of the conversations we've had in the past few hours, what happens to a person after he or she dies? What's the point of my life? Why do I feel guilty about the bad things that I do? Can I be forgiven? And I think that people are asking questions like these and much more. And we need to be the people, the kind of people who, number one, when they come to us, or more like we're the type of people that people want to come to. There is something absolutely inviting about us. And they want to come. They, they want to talk about spiritual things. They want to talk about the difficult things in their lives. And, and two, we also need to be constantly finding ways to engage people. Not only are we an inviting and safe place, a safe harbor for wrestling with deep spiritual issues and questions and, man, what do I do with this kind of stuff? But we are also the kind of people who are constantly looking for opportunities. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He sees through that initial statement that, that Nick, Nicodemus makes, and, and he gets Nicodemus saying, thinking by, by saying this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That statement begs for a follow-up. What? Unless you're born again, you would decide... What? Okay, that's a leading statement right there, Jesus. What are you talking about? There's no way that Nicodemus was going to walk away at this point and just say, oh, I get it now. I got it. Mastered it. That one thing. That's all I needed. Jesus grabbed his attention. His statement about being born again drew him in even more so. Kevin Harney, in his, his book called Organic Outreach for Ordinary People, list five questions that can lead to spiritual conversations. And I don't know if I put, no, I don't think I have them, but I will put them out there for you. One, what are some joys you are experiencing in this, this season of life? Are they up there? You don't have to write them down. I'll put them out there later. Just listen. What, what, are, what are some of the joys you are experiencing in this season? What are some of the challenges and struggles that, that you're facing today? What is your personal history when it comes to faith with God? What do you believe about God? And what is your perception of Christians? That one is a dangerous one. But you want to talk about a leading question that gets people thinking and asking and wrestling? The simple point is that before we share the gospel message, we have to facilitate some kind of interest or spiritual need in the topic. We need to get people thinking. Asking great questions. Second, second thing that Jesus did is that Jesus pointed Nicodemus to spiritual realities beyond himself. 
He pointed Nicodemus to spiritual realities beyond himself. Jesus' statement about being born again prompted an honest question, an honest question from Nicodemus about what do you mean here, Jesus? And Jesus' response was to the point, and it pointed him to the greatness and the mysteriousness of God's work in salvation. He painted a beautiful picture. And basically, what did Jesus do? In pointing out a spiritual reality beyond himself, he essentially tells Nicodemus that there is no hope in yourself. There's no hope in yourself. Nicodemus needs something that he cannot achieve on his own. He needs to be born again. So in our first week of the series, we talked about not being ashamed of the gospel. And I I want to encourage you to passionately and lovingly and yet boldly help people to move beyond themselves. There's more to the, and I think everybody in our hearts says there's got to be more to this life than this. Even the atheist has got to be asking, there's got to be more than when just living this life. Where do morals come from? Where? How, how in the world did God do unique thing? How? So moving beyond just themselves to greater things. And I think people know whether they can put their finger on it or not, they know that they need a divine intervention. Point people to spiritual realities beyond themselves. Number three, what did Jesus do? He called them, called Nicodemus, Nicodemus to believe. After Nicodemus expressed shock about the things that Jesus was saying, Jesus invites him to put faith in himself. He even uses an Old Testament metaphor. Jesus is creative. He uses the metaphor of of Moses, who lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so that when this serpent was lifted up, if people would just look to this serpent, they would be saved from all these other serpents that are biting. Just look. Moses lifted up this serpent and said, look here, look here, believe in this one. And people were saved. And in the same way, did you see this? So the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have not just life, eternal life. And then comes the famous For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The goal of spiritually oriented conversations is to call people to believe. It's not just good enough to get them thinking. There's a point where we got to say, do you believe this? Do you believe this to be true? That is the essence of Christianity. It is the reason why Jesus Christ died. Not just to get people's minds thinking. Jesus died so that people might believe, put their faith in him. That's the heart of the good news. That's what it's about. 
For whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus grabbed his interest. Jesus pointed him to a spiritual realities beyond himself. And then he called Nicodemus, believe. Whoever believes. I want you to believe, Nicodemus. He sees the opportunity for a spiritual conversation. And that is what I want you to consider doing with me. Seize opportunities to turn conversations into spiritual subjects. Be the kind of person who people would think to go to if they have a spiritual problem or if they have a life issue. Who do I go to? Are you the type of person? Or are they scared to death because you are going to clobber them? Remember, he's the one that dined with sinners and tax collectors. He's the one that met the, the woman at the well and said, uh-huh. The reality is, the man that you are with right now is not even your husband. He goes one step further, but he, he invites people into it. He comes into their life. So, not only do we need to just ask heart-probing and thought-provoking questions, and we, we need to, when the opportunity comes, to actually be clear with the gospel. Share the good news. We need to make it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it clear. So we're going to talk about making the gospel clear, and I'm going to give you five words. Now, here's the reality. There are a number of ways to share the gospel. There is not one way. Some of you may have been trained in some kind of evangelism course. Maybe you've been in a youth group. Hey, I know one way. There's the Romans roads. There's the four spiritual laws. There's a bridge illustration. There's even, uh, when I was at camp, we always made these bracelets with kind of a rainbow. You, you could tell the salvation story that way. All these have great strengths, and I would recommend them to. Great if it's working for you, use it. Actually use it. But this is just another tool. Todd, go ahead. One that I hope will give you confidence. One that you'll be able to use quickly and clearly while you share the gospel. Now, you don't have to write down everything that's going to be up here. But oh, And John, go ahead. They're just five words. And this is something that you could put into your, your Bible as you, or in wherever you are. And on the back, you can also put the name of the people that you're praying for, again, by name. But there are five words. Sin, grace, cross, faith, repentance. Five words. And I'm going to, as much as possible, be brief. The first word. Sin. Sin. Any gospel presentation has got to start here. We have to begin with the fundamental problem in the world and the fundamental problem with humanity. This is critical. It's absolutely important because if people are not shown a need, there's nothing else about the gospel that will make sense. Well, that's a nice story. That's a good, good story about Jesus. He sounds like a good teacher, good moral guy. But there's a need. There is a dire need. There is sin. The Bible is absolutely clear about this issue of sin. In Romans 
uh, 3, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of you have sinned. We have all violated God's law, God's commandment. Most people know that they've committed sins, right? They know they've screwed up. Most, the most uh, common objection I hear is that they're not as bad as other people, right? Uh, I get it. Uh, yeah, I'm bad. I screwed that up. But not as bad as my neighbor, or that friend, or that guy over there, or that woman, that one that I work with. They're all about pointing out, but the point still remains, if God is our creator, if he is absolutely holy, and we have broken his law, there's a problem. Let me say it another way. God is holy, you are not, and that's the problem, an eternal problem. The reason we feel guilt over things we have done is because of the presence of a holy God. That's why we feel guilt. There, there's a, a righteous standard that God has and a lack of personal obedience. But sin is a bigger problem than just the things that we do. The Bible tells us that the heart is the real issue and that is deceitful above all things. Your heart is deceitful. So the issue with sin is our desire to run our own lives, to have our own agenda, and the result is external and the heart basis of rebellion towards God. It works itself out. So sin is a problem that the gospel addresses head on. Your sin, go through the Ten Commandments. Kirk Cameron talks about how he used it. Kirk Cameron, what's the other guy's name? Um, Ray Comfort. Talks about using the Ten Commandments to say, let me show you how all these ways that you have broken God's law. You shall have no other gods before me. Lie, steal, you know, the whole thing. Your sin is the issue, and it's an eternal issue. But then we move on to the second word, Grace a free and undeserved gift at the cost of someone for the joy of the recipient. I love it. And, but this word is very, very familiar to people. They, they probably know the song Amazing Grace. Most people know that song and may even have kind of their own definition of what grace is. So, ah, I'll give you grace. In other words, I'll just kind of brush it off. That's not grace. That's just dumb in God's economy. God doesn't just brush it off. The biblical definition relates specifically to the way that a holy God treats sinful humans. Grace is, is simply unmerited favor and unmerited merited kindness there is nothing about you there is nothing that you have done but i'm going to show you my kindness in fact you are evil broken sinful beings but yet i am going to show you my favor and my kindness a good and familiar verse that we all know is john three sixteen, right 
we hear about God's love, and we hear about the gift of his son. So the bad news about our sin is eclipsed, is eclipsed by the beauty of God's undeserved kindness towards us. It is the love of God that motivated him to offer the grace of salvation through his son. And the beauty of grace is that the fact that this offer of redemption is completely, completely undeserved and infinitely costly to God. And that creates, or should create, eternal, unending joy. God's grace should cause us to be joy-filled people because we know who we were. It makes, the song actually makes sense. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's the beauty of grace. It's unmerited. There was nothing. And the, see the definition? It's free. It's undeserved. And it's a gift at the cost of someone else for your joy. But that moves on to the next one, the cross, which is not just about a physical crucifixion. It is really about, and here's the geeky side, penal substitutionary atonement. But please, in your conversations, do not use those words. There's a penalty, right? There had to be a substitute to cover over my sins. If you have already established the problem with sin... And the concept of grace, this fits perfectly. It all fits together. Basically, the meaning here is that God makes a way for our sins to be forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God's remedy to our sinful condition is to provide payment for our crimes through the death of Jesus on the cross. Colossians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Forgiveness is possible because God poured out his punishment on Jesus Christ, he took our place. He took our penalty. He took the judgment that you and I so, so deserved. And the miracle of the cross is the fact that God provided a sacrifice in his own son in order to save people like you and me and quite possibly your neighbors and your family members. Jesus died on the cross for our sin in our place so that we might be forgiven. And the beauty of this gospel is the divine exchange that takes place between the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
There's an exchange that happens. God pours out his judgment that we deserve on Christ and simultaneously grants us righteousness earned by, by Jesus. Same time. Pours out the judgment, transfers righteousness. It's amazing. Jesus absorbs the wrath and God applies righteousness. It's, it's a divine exchange that takes place at the cross. The cross made this exchange possible. It made it beautiful. It made it visual. But that's still not enough. It comes to the next word. Faith. Personal belief and trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. Only Savior who takes away our sins and gives us new life in him. Or as the Westminster Catechism says, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. Saving grace whereby we receive and rest. I love that. We receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. We rest in Jesus for our salvation. We receive it and we rest in him alone for salvation as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So this is the, where the reality of Jesus' death on the cross is personally embraced. He accomplished something, but it must be embraced. It's not enough to know just about the cross as a historical fact. A person must put his or her faith in the person of Jesus Christ and his perfect work on the cross. I believe in that. I trust in that. Faith, belief, and trust are all words that basically mean the same thing. The idea is that you are putting your hope, your hope in what God has promised he would do. I believe that. I believe what Jesus has done is going to be applying to me. Whatever God said about me and what God accomplished through Jesus Christ, it's going to be applied to me. And that is good news. You are trusting what the Bible says about your sin, trusting what the Bible says about the cross and forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul summarizes this in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It means that a person comes to believe what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says about them. Because if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I believe in my heart. I confess it with my mouth. If, I, if those things are true and I believe that, I will be saved. For, the heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. A person is saved by faith. But then there comes the last one, right? Repentance. Despairing over the insufficiency of yourself. And in brokenness over your sin, turning to God for rescue. 
The last word is, is critical. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is what happens when true faith comes. It's a vital part of the work of grace in our hearts. And it involves a radical reorientation of your entire life. Your entire life. To repent means that you have changed your mind. Changed your mind about what? Well, basically everything. You change your mind about everything. You change your mind about who God is, who you are, what is really important, what, who you are really going to obey. It means that there is a new master in your house and that a person has, been trans, has transferred his or her allegiance to Christ. I have a new master. It's no longer, uh, it's no longer the prince of darkness. No. No, it's no longer my boss. It's no longer this or that. I have a new allegiance. There's a new master in this house, and his name is Jesus Christ. I give my full allegiance to him. I will obey. I will trust him. I will obey through the thick and the thin because he is out for my good. And early in Jesus' ministry, what did he do? He called people to repentance. And in Acts, early in, as the church was beginning to expand its mission after Jesus died, there was a preaching of repentance, Peter's sermon. In Acts chapter 3, records the following charge, repent therefore, repent therefore, and turn back that your sins might be blotted out. There's a connection. Turning, blotting. So I love this definition, despairing over the insufficiency of yourself. I'm absolutely insufficient for anything good, absolutely insufficient. So in my brokenness, in my absolutely brokenness about my sin, I am turning to God for my rescue. Repentance means that there's a new person inside of you, and that is the trajectory of your life, and it's going to change everything for the rest of my life. Everything changes from this point out. Sin, grace, cross, faith, repentance. These five words are a great summary for the gospel message, and they're the basic of what it even means for you and me to be believers in Christ. So if God answers your prayer of opening a door, take the moment. Take it. Explain these five important words to the best of your ability. And you know what? You might totally screw up a definition. You might totally mess it up. But you know what God does? He might take it and turn a broken heart around to come to him. So here's the last thing. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you about the power of even sharing God's amazing saving work in your own life. And some of you think you have pretty bland stories. You've got amazing stories of God's saving work in your life. Engaging in spiritual conversation is a great place to start. 
knowing these five words and being ready to share them is a great summary of the gospel. But along with that, there's a really something powerful about your own story. It's not your story that saves people, but it is a great story because someone else wrote it. God has written your story. And stories are critical, especially in this culture that values stories. They long for a good story. Let me hear what God has done in your life. Let me hear about the beauty and the power of the gospel as it has been worked out in your life. Share your stories. And people might connect with your story and be moved by it in a powerful kind of way. So two assignments. Take it or leave it. Last week, we prayed for people by name, people for whom I, I trust that you are praying that God would, would open a door, that God would open your mouth, that you would ultimately open their heart. Your assignment is to ask God for an opportunity to start a spiritual conversation right where you are. Share the five words or share the story of how Jesus Christ collided with your life and by faith you received him and you turned from your old ways and have turned to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your Master. Second assignment, where you can, take an hour, half hour, and write out on one page, a testimony. Short, sweet. I, don't, don't do like the whole five, six, well, when I was three, I did this, and then when I was four, I did this. No, cut it, cut to the chase. Tell about the story. Who were you before Christ? How did you come to Christ? What difference has Jesus made in your life? And, and then take that testimony maybe to your missional community and share it. Hey, guys, I want to practice on you. I want to share my testimony with you. What Jesus Christ has done in my heart, my life, I want to share with you because I want to use my story with other people. I want to share what, how God has redeemed me, a broken man, and taken me from there and is healing me and working me and molding me and making me into the man I am today by the grace of God I've been saved. I want to share that story. Let them give you feedback and just say, hey, can I encourage you? Cut that out. I don't know what that whole store thing was going on in there, but that has nothing. I bored me to death. Cut to the chase, man. Tell me about it. And then as your group wraps up or you, you're doing it with a friend or a family member, pray together. God, would you please open a door? God, would you please, please, this is the hardest thing, open my mouth. And God, on your end, this is the hardest thing, but it's easy for you for some reason. Would you open their heart? Because I can't do it.
Father God, the gospel is absolutely critical for our good, for our life. God, it, it is critical because we are constantly rubbing shoulders, coming into contact with men and women and children who do not know about the saving work of Jesus Christ. So God, I, I pray that we will be people who desire to be into spiritual conversations with them. So God, would you, would you open a door this week? And would we not be ashamed of the gospel? Because we love what you have done in it for us. And we know that in the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation. So God, would you open our mouths because our affections are for you. And God, would you open their hearts? Would you change them? Would you make them new creations? Would they believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord? And would, the, would their mouths confess it out loud? Yes, I believe. I repent. I, I recognize my sin and I rely on the grace of God and I believe by faith and I cling to these, these promises. And I turn to you, Jesus. Lord, may those be words that we long to hear from our friends, our family members, our, our co-workers, from strangers. And Lord, would you use us as regular, everyday nobodies. Simple men and women who there's really nothing glorious about us. There's nothing spectacular about one of us in this room. But God, would you use us to display the glories of of the gospel. And we pray this in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus.